0: Welcome everybody. You're listening to our new From the Stands podcast with Billiken's Athletic Director Chris May. Be sure to follow the show on Twitter at Billiken Podcast for show updates and the latest news regarding our new series. Coach uh, Gino Ariema here with us uh, from the stands with our podcast. First of all, we just want to thank you for being here. Uh, it's uh, it's an honor to have you at St. Louis University and when we were able to Talk to your guide Neil here and put the game together. We were we were thrilled because bringing you to St. Louis and what you mean to women's basketball is an honor. And um, St. Louis University, we are focused on building a women's basketball program. And uh, Lisa Stone's done a fantastic job for us. But our goal is to build. Obviously, you're the, you're the bar, you're the bar. And so, thank you for being here. Uh, first, I wanted to get your thoughts on. What has it taken? When you look at building a program from where you're starting, I looked in '85 when you yeah. had you had a long way to go. Yeah. And uh, from when you started, what were those big pieces that you that you can see as you look back at it now that it took to really grow it and and you, get it to where it is today? You know what was interesting, uh, Chris, is that um, it really doesn't
1: matter like what you start with. It doesn't matter like what advantages you have or what advantages you don't have because we had absolutely none of the advantages that uh, would classify as modern standards of you know, a, a nice arena, uh, a school that was nationally known, um, a school that even the people in Connecticut valued uh, a program that didn't exist. So we had none of the advantages. We weren't in a big city that uh, was attractive to, to young people. So it, it ended up uh, being just a, a mission to find the right people who want to truly be part of something special. Even though it's not, the thought of it being special someday and they being a part of it, to me, was, was, was what we did right from the very beginning. And it started with who I hired as my, as my assistant and uh, what Chris and I were able to do in recruiting those kids that had complete buy-in to me, Chris, and the future that we were building. It had nothing to do with, well, if I go there, I'm gonna get this, 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 and this. Or if I go there, they're gonna promise me this, 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 and this. There was nothing like that. It was all about, I really, really, really am convinced that Gino and Chris are gonna give me an opportunity to do something special. And I think people kind of can resonate with that as opposed to showing them, you know, what you've done. And and so to build that, you have to be able to withstand also the negativity that comes along with, well, you're not any good. You're not as good as Tennessee. You're not as good as Stanford. You're not as good as Virginia at the time. And even when you get better, it's still, you're not, you, you, People aren't gonna take you seriously. And even when we started winning, it was, well, fans still aren't coming. So it's not even about winning anymore. It's about how do you put something on the floor that people want to watch, that is entertaining, that is the right kind of kids, that the culture is something that people can say, you know, that's a culture I can get behind. So all those things all came long before a new locker room or charging money to come watch us play or getting even a band and cheerleaders to actually do. Todd Turner, God bless him, was a good friend of mine. He was our AD and I remember we won the Big East Championship in 1988 and we started in 85. I said, Todd, how about a band, cheerleaders, just a couple <laughs> people with like, make noise. He goes, nah, we can't afford to do that. So it was a struggle within our own building to get things but we never stopped and we never went to the AD and complained, we don't have this, we don't have that, we don't have this, men's basketball has this, men's basketball has that. We never played that game. We wanted to earn it on our own and feel like we deserved it, not because Title IX said we had to have it. Right. So, was there a watershed moment? I think there was. I think there was, uh, there was some growing pains, you know, where I inherited a team, we won our first seven games, and they had only won nine four years in a row before that, so they thought we were going to the Final Four. (laughs) And I thought, come on, guys, calm down, you know? We won our first seven, so we're seven and oh. Well, the excitement was through the roof, you know? We started getting 300 people at the game instead of 250, right? And then all of a sudden, we lost like nine of our next 10, and reality hit, like, hey, this is gonna be a really struggle. But that year, those kids, played harder than they ever played in their lives. They competed harder than they ever competed in their lives. And they left there with, with 11 wins, and they left there as winners. 12, I think. Yeah, we won 12 games. And they thought they were winners because they didn't finish last. So they felt like they won something. And like any other growing pains, as you bring in your own players, then all of a sudden the team started to kind of have a, uh, uh, an identity issue. Well, these are Coach Riema's players. These are the other coaches' players. And it didn't work out so great. And then we had to kind of like move on. So the watershed moment came when one year in April, there were four players on my team. Now, we had signed seven that were going to come in in September. But there were four kids. If we would have had a banquet in May, there would have been four players there. And... Nobody was paying attention, which is great. Today you would get crucified. But there was four kids on that team. And we had seven freshmen coming in. Those seven freshmen that came in totally transformed that program. None of them were highly recruited. None of them were superstar material. But all seven of them brought a whole different mentality to the four really good players that we already had. And that year, their freshman year, we won the biggest Championship for the first time with seven freshmen and four guys came back. And from that point on, it just kept getting better and better and better because now all of a sudden, Rebecca Lobo's graduating. She's from an hour away from our campus. She visits campus. Her mother, nice Catholic woman that she is, wants the best for her daughter and says to me, you know, I'm a guidance counselor in high school. None of my kids that are number one in their class go to Connecticut. My daughter's number one in her class. Why should she go there? And now, you know, it's like, you know, the whole Italian thing comes out. Your hands are flying. You're saying <laughs> stuff. You know, you're hoping to. But the bottom line is when she visited and she met the players that we had, she met them as people, and they be, they've become her lifelong friends. So because we recruited the right kids who weren't good enough players, when the best players were coming out and they visited, they didn't look at the buildings, the locker room, the gym. They looked at the people that we had, and they said, I want
0: to be with them. You had your watershed moment. You had four left. That'd be hard to pull off today. You couldn't do it today. You couldn't do it today. So you had four left, and you had to build team. Yeah. You had to build team. Was that the moment that the culture really... That that moment. Really got juiced? Was that the moment? That freshman. All teams and all great programs, there's a moment when... You can see that it's starting to evolve, yeah. and the 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 upperclassmen will accept the freshmen. That's right, and they go together. That's right. We had
1: we had uh, we had no seniors, so it was going to be two sophomores, two juniors, and seven freshmen. And those sophomores and juniors were all mine. So now we've got seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven of my players that we recruited, and the seven that came in came in with. No baggage, no drama. They were willing to give more than get. So when they showed up, we had, a, we had one kid who's still involved in our program, Megan Patterson. She was on a recruiting visit, and I said, what's the recruit doing? I said, well, she can't talk to you right now, coach. I said, what do you mean she can't talk to me right now? Said, we're, we're in the apartment. I want to talk to her. She can't. She's doing the dishes. Voluntarily, this kid's cleaning up after a party that they had. She's a recruit. And that was the message from that whole freshman class. Coach, we're here to give as well as to receive. And that made our culture a culture of, listen, when you come to Connecticut, you are a giving type of person. You give yourself to your teammates, to your coaches, to your school, to the program, and that hasn't changed one iota. That's when it started
0: How, how did you uh, develop that and identify those pieces we talk we talk about culture here I know all the time. I know how, how did you pick those pieces out
1: It's the hardest thing um, because when you're recruiting kids back then and I guess you can do it today to a lesser extent I could spend as much time as I yeah. wanted with those kids right I wanted to talk to that kid every day I could right. I want to go see that kid play every day I could right. the only restrictions were if a mom let Rebecca Lobo's mom says, uh, listen, Sunday night, you can talk to Rebecca Lobo. I said, okay, fine, I'll call her every Sunday night. So I did. But in our conversation every Sunday night, she said, coach, I'll call you Tuesday. You know, because the kid wanted to have a relationship with right, you. Right. So it became a personal relationship that you establish with these kids. And how do you identify them? The ones that want to have a relationship with you. They want to feel like I'm, a, I'm joining your family, I'm not joining your team. So when you identify them, what identifies them as people that are willing to be part of your family? One, they have pretty strong families right? to begin with. So they understand what that looks like. Two, they're used to being rewarded when things go well and not rewarded when things go poorly. So they're realistic kids coach is going to pat me on the back every time I do something really good and when I do something that's really stupid coach is going to tell me that's really stupid and I'm going to pay the consequences there's no in between there's no nice try, there's no we have to build your self esteem there's none of that, it's just real and when they got there they brought that realism and you could coach them hard you could really demand certain things because they wanted to give you everything you wanted and when The other kids saw that, and when the incoming recruits saw that after them, it just kinda snowballed. And sure, you make mistakes, you're gonna get a couple kids that are gonna come in and go, I wanna do it my way. Hell, I got a bunch of them on my team right now, because that's the world that you live in. But if your culture is a certain way, they're gonna change, or they're gonna leave. Nobody's Mm -hmm. gonna stay that doesn't fit your culture.
0: We talk about values Mm -hmm. at St. Louis all the time. Mm -hmm. We talk about trust. We talk mm-hmm. about caring for each other, mm-hmm. and we've spent a lot of time talking about gratitude. Mm-hmm. And I, I observed your freshman who had a great game yesterday yeah. Yeah. play unbelievably well, yeah. and she goes on national TV and says how proud I am to be part of a team. Yeah. So clearly gratitude is critical at what you do also, mm-hmm. and what I've observed over the years is all the great ones have total gratitude when they win. Yeah. And how have you been able to instill gratitude with your program? Because I saw it yesterday on TV yeah. after a big win. So clearly you guys hammer that nonstop that, that you're part of something bigger than yourself. Yeah. That it's about, if you're gonna be a great teammate, you're leading with kindness to your team. No question. How have you been able to do that? Because I, I mean, I saw it again yesterday. I know.
1: It was unbelievable. I know, and it's not an accident because people tell me this all the time. You know, They see it in our players. The very first thing, my very first announcement when I hired Chris, I said, listen, I went to Catholic school all my life. There were certain standards that you had to live up to. Chris went to Catholic school all her life. She's used to having certain high standards. I said, Chris, you and I, we're going to run this like a Catholic school, high school program. Here's what you do. You show up and you look the part. okay? You look like someone who's serious about going to school, who's serious about playing basketball, who's respectful, who understands the opportunity that you're being given, who understands that, one, you don't go to class, you don't practice. You miss study hall, you don't practice. You get a grade lower than what I think you should be getting, you have to pay the consequences. I've left kids home, not because they were failing, not because of anything other than our academic people say, look, she's not really trying really hard. Okay, there are certain standards that we have that every kid has to live up to. And because you do that, they all know that. So just yesterday, it's interesting that you bring that up. Cause just yesterday I said, I was comparing and contrasting two styles. And I said, when you win, when you're playing a team sport, when you win, it's usually the result of a team win, not an individual win. Yet you can't have a team win unless you have great individual performances. That individual performance can happen unless the rest of the team contributes to that. So when you have an unbelievable performance, the first thing you need to do is thank your teammates for helping you do that. When you lose and you're one of our upperclassmen, the first thing you do is say, listen, I didn't do enough to help us win the game. I take full responsibility for that. And especially your best players because If we win a national championship, I know who's gonna be on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Well, that same person better step up every time we lose and say, it was my fault. Because if you're gonna get all the credit for winning, then you need to take all the blame for losing. And once you build that in your team, kids understand, I don't win by myself. I don't lose by myself. I give credit when we win, and I take responsibility when we lose. That's the basis of everything
0: we do. Well, I I couldn't be more uh impressed by how you've done it again gratitude is how we put it uh, I, I i got the most appreciation for you when in your interviews when you lost in my opinion you did your best job when you lost because that's when it's hardest and when you came out and the cameras are on you how do you manage that message because obviously uh, emotions are raw you're a competitive yeah. son of a gun yeah. but i got the most appreciation for you in how you presented and how you pack how you laid it on the line when you lost i think that's when people grow and they do the best job of leading because it's unbelievably hard anybody can be on you when you're winning right? right right when you're winning that's easy right how have you been able to manage in those few moments you're fortunate you don't have many of those right now but i've got to tell you when you when you got beat last year i couldn't have been more impressed how, how do you manage that well
1: let's just say we hadn't won 11 national championships already I might have reacted differently <laughs> <laughs> so I think what happens is ever since I was a kid and, and when I speak to companies you know I, I always talk about the value of being a great teammate and understanding that from the time you're a kid you're always on a team whether it's a team at home whether it's your first team you make whether it's uh, high school college whether it's uh, you're going to work and they put you in a little group and you have a project. There's never a time when you're out there on your own by yourself. And the sooner you learn to be a great teammate, then success is gonna follow right away. So for us, winning is a product, a byproduct of all the things that we do. Okay, so we win a lot. But I've always understood there's two sides to playing. You're gonna win and you're gonna lose. If you win all the time, people's perception is you're an arrogant SOB. And I have that reputation all over the country. Earned. I've earned it for the most part, partly because of how I am a lot of times and partly because it goes with the territory when you win all the time. There's
0: a lot of people that love to have that.
1: That's right. So when you win all the time, there's this perception of who you are. So when you lose, you can either live down to that perception that people have or you can say to them, listen, you don't have any idea what I'm really like. So when you win, you act like, you know, yeah, we won, but we won because we have the best players and we play great and we beat a really good team. When you lose and you start to act like you're entitled to winning and this losing is for everybody else but you, you reinforce people's opinion that you're an arrogant SOB. So, to me, you're trying to teach your players that you're not entitled to winning. The other team's allowed to win once in a while. And when they do, give them credit for beating you. Because if nobody ever beats you, then you're beating people that don't deserve to be playing against you. Right. So you can't have it both ways. So I've learned along the way, and I've tried to teach my players, there's no shame in getting beat. None. There's shame in losing because you don't compete you don't play hard but when you do you what you're supposed to do and the other team plays a little bit better than you
0: and they win you know what there's no shame in that my last question yeah i've, I've read a million year quotes but the one i like the best is with the absence of pressure it's hard to do great things mhm mhm tell us about that you obviously well, thrive yeah. in that space i do you i do in it. and it's funny you know what because
1: when i was a kid growing up um I didn't know how to handle pressure. Cause I always felt like there was undue pressure on me and I was in a constant pressure situation growing up. Cause coming from another country and you don't speak the language. So right away, your first day of school. I learned my very first day of school what pressure really is. I'm, I'm Not even eight years old yet. My aunt takes me to St. Francis, two blocks from my house. I don't speak any English the clothes I'm wearing, are clothes my mom made me when we were in Italy, I just got here two days before that. We walk up to the school and the nun says to my aunt, no uncertain terms, this is November 23rd, 24th I think it was. At the end of June, all the kids in second grade are going to third grade. All the ones that are not very smart, that don't do their work right, they have to stay back in second grade. And my aunt's explaining this to me in Italian. And naturally, today, I would go, okay, well, when's my English as a second language class? Where's (laughs) where's my tutor? Okay, am I going to get special, you know? (laughs) So this is 1961, you know, and, and this isn't happening. So right away, the message was delivered to me. Listen, young man, you either figure this stuff out now, or you're doing second grade all over again. So I had a couple months to figure it out. So I ingratiated myself into every single opportunity that I could, every little thing. Meet this kid, meet that kid, spend time on the playground, read, like saturate my brain with just read, read, read. I know, I know where Battle Creek, Michigan is when I was seven years old. Why, because that's where they make cornflakes and Frosted Flakes, you know? Because <laughs> you read the box of everything, You everything, everything. And I thought, I think since that day, I've been a guy that handles being put in situations where you better you better figure it out and you better figure it out quickly, and then the last story that I like to tell is, I think I got it from my mother. My mother got a job, and she spoke no English, at this uh, plant where they made uh, defense department uh, components, and it's assembly line, and each person that gets their piece of the of the puzzle has to put some wires together, has to do some things, and they pass it down to the next person, you know, and then by the time it gets to the end of the line, it's a finished product. Well, the guy's explaining, all right, this group, this is your job, you guys, these are how the wires are connected. So he's explaining this, but my mother has no idea what he's saying. She just watches what he's showing the person next to her. And she'll tell you to this day, she's 87, she goes, gee, I never got one wrong. Because in her mind, if I get one wrong, I'm gonna get fired. So to me, it's like, we can't lose any games. You know how much money I get paid? If we lose a game, it's like, I'm gonna get fired. Now,
0: I know that's not true, but that's kind of how I operate. So the pressure has been a, a great uh, asset and motivator for you.
1: Yeah. Your whole life. And Yeah, and I drink a lot of wine to compensate for that.
0: Well, that's good. <laughs> well, uh, I want to thank you for joining us, but more importantly, I want to thank you for what you've done for our business. Thank you. You have, uh, you have led with class. I appreciate you've that. You've led with the type of values that it takes to be successful, and you, uh, you've shown us all the way. So we really appreciate it, and uh, thank you for joining us, and good luck after tomorrow night. In yeah. Serena.
1: Well, you know, the last thing, I think, for, from our standpoint at Connecticut is whenever we have a kid that comes to, to Connecticut, we always try to say, okay, well, if, if you're really good, we'll try to get back to where you live, and you know, some of your friends and family can watch you play. And you'd be surprised. How many times we call a school and we'll say, hey, can we get a game, you know, blah, blah, blah. When we come into your town, you're going to sell a lot of tickets. It's going to be a lot of promotion, blah, 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 blah. And and you'd be surprised how many schools say, no, I don't want any part of that. And for St. Louis University to say, yeah, you know what? We We want that. We want to see what this looks like, what it feels like. And for Lisa to say, I want to play Connecticut, and for giving us the opportunity to come back here and have Nafisa have... This kind of opportunity,
0: I can't thank you enough for that. Well, we're honored to have you. Thank you. Thank you. If you like what you've heard, please rate and subscribe on our iTunes. You won't want to miss our next episode on December 15th. We'll talk a lot more basketball, and we'll have a sit-down with Missouri Hall of Famer Jim Halliburton to discuss his career and what he's done with the swimming and diving team here at SLU, in addition to his storied success as a collegiate and world-class swimmer. Thanks for listening, and go Billikens.